What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Hi there, it's Paul, and you're listening to What the Footy, the podcast that takes football fans behind the scenes. Here is what I have lined up for you to. Michael Edwards has a, a, a reputation as obviously someone who's like stays behind the, the scenes, and, and he has done, uh, and is kept very quiet. However, as a as a person and as a colleague in the football industry, I found him to be one of the most open and supportive and uh, critically supportive people uh, I've worked with. This is the What The Footy podcast. I hope you love it. Not like it, I hope you love it. Download, subscribe, rate and review and tell a friend to tell a friend. Let's go. Knew some other guys liked me, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school, now it's a foot in Powerful people, and I think they need to recognise that, but then also they need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know, one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. Let's just win this to appease the fan. How you doing today, Dan? Welcome to the uh, What The Footy podcast. Great. Paul, thanks for having me on. Uh, how are you doing? Yeah, no, I'm good, thanks. I'll, I'll do a little bit of an intro and talk about how your CEO of uh, Association of Sporting Directors, Associate uh, Sports Business Professor at the University of Liverpool, but you've got so many titles, Dan, that I wouldn't even... I, w- I think we'll be here all day going for all the, all the different titles. Well, you know what, Paul? I can say a few of them, but yeah. The, the main one is associate professor at the University of Liverpool. Um, that's kind of like the driver and things that underpins what I try to do in terms of having an impact in the industry, trying to stay informed and doing research like with people who are actually in position um, to really understand what's going on, to make sure my students have the best experience. So that's a, that's a key one and that drives all, all the other activities that I do. Yeah, no, definitely. But um, we start off the show with this question, which is what is football to you, a business or a sport and why? So for me, when I thought about about like what is football, I guess it ch- chases back and to try and capture it all, there was like a, I, I got the date here, it was like the 8th of April in 1995. So I was, uh, I was nine and we all sat around, a, we were all sitting around a little tally in my grandparents' house. And my granddad had collected all the pounds, all the pocket money pounds he'd just give us. And he'd gone to bookies and, and picked our horses for the Grand National. And then I'd, pick, I'd picked a, a horse called Royal Athlete, which was 40 to 1. Um, mm. And at the time, Joe Royal was our manager oh, yes, uh, yeah. at Everton Football Club. So it won. And not only did, did I pick it, because um, obviously uh, Royal Athlete, Joe Royal, Royal Blue, the Everton Colours, Everyone had pitted to so the next day. We'd got we'd um, we'd gone to we were going up to play Tottenham Hotspur at Leeds United. So we had a minibus of Everton fans who had also backed um, Royal Athletes, but they put on more than the pocket money's money's pound. So we had a, just one of those amazing days where we went up and obviously I think Amakachi scored two the next day, two others. Daniel Amakachi, yeah. which was one of those special days, and Everton went on to win the FA Cup. So. What what my point is, it ties in like your history, your tradition, your family, your friends, the way you do things, your values. It kind of captures so much. And if I said to you, like, what you, or maybe I will, Paul, what do you think about when you think about like Liverpool as a city? What comes to mind? Oh, the first one that came to mind is football, the Beatles, um, just 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 the big overall football city where 
everyone's just sort of passionate about football, going to the football. You can just see how much football means up there because obviously down here in London, there's so many clubs. You've got Palace, you've got the Arsenal, who I support, you've got Chelsea, but up there you have, see like Liverpool, you've got Everton there, Manchester, you've got United, you've got City, and you can see how much it, it just consumes people really. You can see that passion really come through, man. We've got we've got a lot of northern cities, and obviously live, I, I live in Birkenhead, just across the water from from Liverpool. But when people think about the city, they'll think about the waterfront, they'll think about music, and they'll think yeah. about the clubs. So it's kind of like our clubs are embed, embedded within like the history and culture of the city. Um, I do feel like we have like that fierce and sometimes horrible rivalry between like our clubs, Everton and Liverpool, but. The reality of it, as soon as we get away from the match, there's we all drink in the same pubs, drink, eat in the same restaurants, share the same household. So actually, it's quite you know I feel like there's a a closer connection. I could say something funny as well about all like the Liverpool fans, you know, <laughs> getting the plane home or getting the train home back down to London and stuff like that. But I won't. I'll, I'll save that. I'll save that. <laughs> but um, but yeah, no, Dan. Part of the reason I I got you on here is one one of the big things that you do is you're the chief executive the Association of Sporting Directors, working with a lot of technical directors within the game and a lot of TDs who obviously work at clubs that people who listen to this podcast maybe work at or support. And I think uh, when I first spoke to Stuart King, who, who recruits a lot of these um, a lot of these roles two years ago, the role has really changed and evolved over that period of time. We're seeing a lot more media spotlight um, on 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 TDs, maybe maybe it's the fact of the the long term absence of one at a club like Manchester United. Maybe it's the success of uh, of Michael Edwards at, at, at Liverpool as well. Um, we're almost seeing it now, whereby fans almost maybe potentially even see the the TD role even more as important as, as the role of the manager. How have you sort of seen seen the role evolve uh, since you've sort of been working in this space? Yeah, I think. Um... I think just to give a bit of insight on the, the ASD, because you've had some from, yeah. from people like Mike Rigg coming on and, and obviously insights on the role from, from Les Reed. The organisation was set up by technical directors, sporting directors, four sporting directors. So I'm, I think it was about three years ago, four years ago, I was very lucky to be asked by some of the members to take on the leadership of the organisation. And it's something that I do to support my activities around research and understanding the game and also because... It's like a privilege and honour to be uh, working in a, a sport that I love and also being able to hopefully make a positive influence with those, those people. I think the change and in interest that we've seen, there's a number of factors, you know, around, you know, we, we certainly had a problem and still do with a high turnover first team managers. And traditionally, the first team managers will bring in a load of staff with them, take a load of staff uh, with them when, when they went to. Um, and that's just problematic for performance, culture, operations, and obviously trying to recruit and develop the best people. If they, you know, it's very difficult when people choose who they come in and then they also leave the organisation. So that development of human capital is lost every time, uh, as well as the relationships with players. So it's, I mean, that's really, really one of the challenges. We've also seen an influx of, of new owners that have brought sometimes a more professional way of doing things and I've wanted to protect their investment. Uh, other times that's been more questionable. Uh, and then the, the third concern has probably been like, it's been like a massive uh, explosion of the number of staff. And I think if you look through the supply chain of football, it's got much, um, much more diverse and much bigger. And so not just within the clubs, but external to clubs, so there's much more people for 
to be managed in that performance area. So you needed, we kind of needed someone who could understand the, and have that fo- football acumen to understand what was going on. To be, and but also like the business and commercial skills and communication skills to sit on the board and be able to say, look, you know, this is going to happen, but it's because of this, this, and this. And that kind of protected, you know, the, the first team manager that ultimately has to manage a massive team of staff, but also, you know, at least 20, possibly up to 40 men and people who are challenging. They've got their own aspirations, their own motivations, their own agendas, all these things that they want to achieve. You know, I, that the idea of managing, you know, 20, 30 millionaires on a week on a daily, weekly basis, it's it's challenging work. So a head coach needs to need to space and time to be able to do that, reflect on their leadership, reflect on the practice without having to also manage a board. And I guess that's that's where the, the, the role kind of kind of fits in for me. Yeah, and just sort of building on that as well, um, I think. In, in that sort of evolution since, since I last sort of spoke with Stuart, we've seen more on clubs, um, more and more clubs, sorry, um, appoint um, a, a sporting director. And I think we're almost in a position now whereby if you haven't got one, everyone's sitting around a table or, or, or in the back of a newspaper and they're asking, why haven't you got one? What does success ultimately really look like in terms of, in terms of this role and, and, uh, and, and almost having this operating model? Yeah, I think I think to understand where we are, um, we kind of got to un- understand that whenever we look to change anything, whether it's in society or any business, it takes time. Yeah. And this is quite a significant change, and not just on like some uh, background business, you know, a printer firm or something like that. It's happening in a business where people want to read about it in the back pages. People unfortunately read about it in the front pages. It's in our fingertips. So when you when we have these changes. Everyone's trying to do it quite quickly. Uh, and everyone, I think we're in a position now where people understand a little bit about what it is, but there's still ambiguity. So when you have change and what we're seeing, we're asking for someone to sit on the board, potentially, or well, not we, but that's how, that's how kind of how the roles transpired, someone to sit on the board. But for me to allow someone to sit on the board, I've got to give over resources to them. I've got to give over decision-making and power. And people in society... And people on boards aren't built to do that really well because they get there and they feel like you know it's given away why they're there. And in football, we have a lot of executives that also want to be involved in transfers, negotiations, deal. And that's the glamorous side. So I've talked about it as this architectural innovation. And it's really difficult because it means you've got to give away some of your power. So why, why is that important? Because whenever you have any type of change, you know we have lots of trial and error. So... We've had lots of people that have tried it. Some of it's worked out, some of it hasn't. Sometimes when it hasn't worked out, it's been used by a board to say, right, we've tried it now to the fans. We're not going to try it again. We're going to stick to the manager approach and it buys a board a little bit more time. And sometimes it's been successful. Sometimes it's been successful, but it hasn't been viewed as successful. So we're constantly yeah. having these small successes, small wins, small failures, little drops back. But we haven't, we haven't really got into a process of really understanding what success looks like and then being able to celebrate it. So success can vary depending on the, the agenda and in context of the club at any point. So, you know, success at one club when a new owner comes in, and there's lots of money might look like X, Y, Z, but then after a number of years of spending all that money and not achieving that success, success might look like something completely different now. And the agendas change much, um, um, 
completely. So I think success is a really challenging one for us to to, to yeah. articulate. Yeah, and I think that's that's the bit that has always fascinated me because, like, take for example someone like Stuart Weber, who I think is one of, one of the, the the fantastic sort of sporting technical directors in the game, and you look at what he's doing there at Norwich, and I think he came out and said, like, we know what we are. We're one of the top twenty two teams uh, in English football. If we get relegated from the Premier League, we know we have the the model that's going to get us right back in there, finish whether first or second in the Championship, and you look at what he's doing there, whether that's plucking a player like Emi Buendia or all the academy players who've sort of come through the ranks. And to me, that is success. But then he's having to come out mid-season and kind of defend what he's doing, defend the strategy, because some people don't understand the parameters in which he's working in. And, and I think that's probably one of the hardest things about the, the role, the, the outside scrutiny that, that a lot of people sort of within it get. And... I think like you sort of mentioned there towards the end, success is really, it's, it's dependent on the person above you and what, what sort of uh, parameters and objectives they set. But as we all know in football and being football fans, you're scrutinised by the media and you're scrutinised by fans. Yeah, I think, I think one of the things that I guess I w- I've observed with yeah. Stuart Webber is that when a sporting director like first goes into a club, there's probably, a, there's probably an expectancy for them to be the answer. And people have talked about like, you know, recruiting a sporting director, recruiting a manager. And sometimes it's like as if they're going to be the, the all answers. And I think as a leader, at some point you, you get to a point where you realize that your personal agency cannot always be the answer. And actually, the success comes from realizing the importance of the collective. So one of the things that I've seen with, with, with Stuart, and maybe it's like we give a nod to his background from being a groundsman at Wrexham moving into talent identification through to Liverpool, Huddersfield, Norwich, those experiences, he, he will have seen and valued the importance of the people around him, the relationships, the importance of him being able to make a decision, but also empower and support people and find the best people. So one of the things I see remember is it's not about Stuart having all the answers. It's about him being able to, you know, bring in the best people, understand their expertise pull that together to then inform his, his decision-making or, or the decision-making of the team. And I think when you look at him as a, as, a, as a leader now, it's not just about what he does, it's about what he does for others. So one of the recent things he's done is set up is something called the, the Summit Foundation, about having a, an impact on, on um, and supporting deprived peoples through challenges and, and fundraising. Now, stuff like that, many sporting directors during the transfer window like hardly leave the office and hardly speak to the the partners and the families where there's Stuart is is training close with his family working on stuff for for the community. I just think that's what one of leaders is about, and it's kind of the skills and attributes I would see that is required in the future. And um, I think there's like a real really something really unique going down there within that context, within that ownership and governance structure in which Stuart operates and a. I think he's a he's a professional, humble um, operator that will go on to even greater things in the future. Yeah, no, definitely, because because even just sort of mentioning some of the some of the things you mentioned in in the previous question, there different different clubs tend to tend to do it in different ways. So whether that's like Crystal Palace, for example, like they've obviously got Dougie there as a sporting director, but then you've got Steve Parrish who kind of gets a little bit involved in as well. And then you look at Tottenham, they've got Daniel in there who obviously likes to get involved, but then he's brought in Fabio in there as well. And then you look at Chelsea and they've got Marco and Milano used to be there, and they've got Marina doing a lot of it and. 
Petter gets a little bit involved in it as well. Is there, have you sort of seen, is there a right or, or I don't want to say wrong way, but what has been the most sort of effective way in your view, looking at holistically, whether that's Premier League or even across Europe in terms of how, how, how this model should, should really work effectively? Yeah, I mean, the first thing, the first thing you're trying to say, Paul, is that every club is unique yeah. and they're doing it their own way. And sometimes it's hard for people to accept, oh, well, a sporting director is this, isn't it? But actually, yeah. no, it's not. It's okay. There's not a sporting director police that goes around with a checklist to say, <laughs> are they doing this, that and the other? You know, these are businesses owned by different types of owners that want to do things a certain way. One of the things that we have when guys come here, because we have got, I would say, like a quite a diverse Premier League, and we've got diverse set of managers, diverse yeah. set of staff, and also like sporting directors in many respects. You know, you talk about, you know, likes of, you know, Marcel was in Everton and, and Fabio and, and so on. These guys are from, from different backgrounds, different experiences. So I don't think we should be saying necessarily it should look like this. I think we just need to celebrate the successes. Yeah. So when we see success, however it may look, then we need to try and unpick that and understand that. So um, the, the problem that we have, Paul, is probably it's not clear on, say, what different people do in different yeah. clubs and what those structures look like. And some of that might never come out for good and probably, you know, less favourable re reasons where they want to protect that. Um, and I, I think that's obviously down to the club. One of the things that I think we, I, I always draw back to, um, and Les, Reid, who you, you've interviewed, will be a massive advocate for this, is that if we want to see change within our organisation, if, if I brought, um, if you brought me in, Paul, and just stuck me below the board, there's challenges because then I still need to, I can't give all the wins out that I might need because I need to ask someone for those wins. Yeah. So it changes that dynamic. Whereas I brought you in and you sat on the board, you would have that access to decision-making and you would sit in those meetings where resources were allocated. So let Les and, and I would share this. I think I feel it's really important for someone to sit on the board and to be able to access the decision-making uh, space However, if you looked at, at you know Dan's time at Dan Ashworth's time at Brighton, yeah, he's done incredibly successful, like bringing in new processes, bringing in new people, uh, raising the standard of 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 things and supporting the progress of the club, but didn't sit on the board. And you could argue though that it's quite a unique context, and there might be a, a really high levels of trust in that in his recruitment process where you could say, well, that's all right. I don't need to fight for that. I don't need to sit on the board in this club at this point because of this particular context. So I always think it's, we've just got to be careful. There might be, I think having role clarity is the most important thing. Um, and the research that we've done, there's a lot of discussion around the, uh, the role title. Um, when it, when it drills down, mo most aren't too fussed about the title as long as they're clear about the, the role, um, yeah. which kind of underpins what they're going to be allowed to do. Yeah, because I was going to ask him, um, um, about that, about the research aspect of what you do, Dan, because obviously you're in that unique position whereby you're on the ground, like you're speaking with these people, you're advising them, you're doing the work with Dundee United there as well. But on the flip side of it, you're also an academic and, and you do a lot of research-based work. How do you sort of see those two things sort of marry up? And we're almost seeing the... The, the route to going into these roles now whereby you can go and undertake um, uh, a master's, a course in sporting directorship to go and help you to elevate you into the role. I think I think Les mentioned that Steve Round, who's now at Arsenal, is one of the first 
people to go go and do one of those courses um, yeah. as well. How do you sort of see the things marry up? Do you, are you seeing the role becoming a bit more academic, or or is it or is it still still laid in those sort of um, practical foundations? I, I don't think that I don't think the role becomes more academic. There's a couple of things there. There's probably an existence. So maybe I answer it in in three ways. So first, as a unit yeah. university member of staff, like we've got to teach. And you either I ever teach books wrote by other people, yeah. or I do the research, so write write my own books, or write my own papers to inform me teaching. And I prefer that latter. So to do that, you get you depending on what you teach, you have a scope of where you where you want to research. And at the same time, you also need to have impact. So that might impact on individuals, organizations, yeah. or policies. So I'm fortunate that I get to teach and meet people like Steve Round and all the others on the Master in Sport Directors previously years ago, but also the courses I teach on now. And I still want to teach cutting-edge stuff. So I teach a module on becoming a football executive. So one of my research projects, which is about how sporting directors and sport football leaders recruit staff, that ties directly into me teaching because then we can start to understand how recruitment in football is done. Yeah. So that's that bit. I think from a research side and sporting directors, then I want to do stuff that is important to them. So usually when you publish an academic article, you might get, you know, if you're lucky, a couple of thousand views over the years. Um, we published one on how sporting directors recruit in, in the European Sport Management Quarterly Journal in, I think it was December, and it's had almost 9,000 views. Wow. So it's it's in like the top 10 of the most viewed articles in that journal. It's been going for like 15, 20 years. So it gets read because we want to do research that is empirically sound and answers a research gap, but also answers an industry issue. And I think the final bit about research in, in football is that there probably was like, uh, I was lucky because I worked with uh, a number of colleagues at Liverpool John Moores University and I worked with my undergrad and PhD there's a guy called Professor Tom Riley, and he, he's, he's passed away now, but he was part of my PhD. He was part of many of the leading football scholars' journey. Um, he was like the guy innovator that brought like sports science into football with Everton, yeah. Liverpool, United, and other clubs. When they're doing tests on the side of the pitch and whatnot, the real groundbreaking stuff. Um, and Tom kind of paved the way because he had to fight all the anti-intellectualism in the start. And there will still be people now that will turn their nose up at someone with a, a, a PhD, um, possibly because they don't understand it, possibly because they don't <laughs> yeah. know what we know, which is not yeah. like, a, I'm not saying a negative way, but I would do that too, uh, potentially. But we're trying to work and build connections with people who are more open because research and development within football clubs is becoming much bigger and it's becoming much more important because the clubs need to find insights on their business through collecting yeah. data that is objective to have an impact because the mar the marginal opportunities to have that impact is, is really difficult. So I think we'll see now, and I've seen a, an increase in roles, certainly uh, not just say my, my own, but in most clubs, they've got research insights departments with some really bright people that are doing some incredible work behind the scenes. And I guess in relation to the, the sporting director, there's probably worth giving a nod to like Liverpool FC, and what what Michael's done there, and when you see Michael's letter on his departure, you kind of give a nod to the collective because it's not just him that was making all the decisions; it was all the people around him. And one of those guys was 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 Ian Graham, 
So Ian Graham, he actually had a, a research team behind him. So four or five people constantly trying to find insights to have an impact on the organisation. Now that's that's a really exciting aspect of football on on what we can find out and how we can improve what goes on. Yeah, and no, I think that's super useful because it's, it's a thing whereby uh, football clubs are, at times with, with their success, whether that's off the pitch, on the pitch, it can be very transient. As we can see, like I'm an Arsenal fan. I've got friends that support Man United. But there's there's, there's, there's times whereby the research, I, I really believe, can really aid how you can continue to win long term and, and also win over time. One thing I do find quite, quite unique and interesting, um, Dan, is obviously... Um, Mark Edwards' tenure, tenure at Liverpool's obviously come to an end and obviously Julian's now stepping into that role. Um, he, he was obviously recently the assistant uh, sporting director there as well and worked for the club for a number, number of years. How, how, how new or, or, um, or sort of revolutionary is this whole idea of succession planning? Because obviously typically you, you see succession planning when it comes to um, players. You think about Sir Alex Ferguson and, and what he brought at Manchester United and maybe from the class of 92 to, to, uh, to what he did later on in the 2000s. And you typically see when it comes to, to players, maybe potentially a manager, Les came on, spoke about the black box methodology and, 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 and always having an eye out for up and coming managers. How, how new is, is, is it seeing this whole idea of succession planning in regards to, to sporting directors? I think Liverpool's a, a fascinating one, and I've been Michael Edwards has a, a, a reputation as obviously someone who's like stays behind the, the scenes, and and he has done, uh, and he's kept very quiet. However, as a as a person and as a colleague in the football industry, he's one of the most I'd found him to be one of the most open and supportive and uh, critically supportive people uh, I've worked with. He's always been a great support for. My research give me access, give me insight um, that some of us have, have struggled to, 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 to open up to. The same with the likes of Ian Graham, head of research, who's very supportive of the University of Liverpool, keeps a close connection, uh, comes in to give guest talks. So we're lucky and Ian is a, a top operator too. I think with, with, with the likes of the other people that's worth, that not just worth mentioning, but I think are in that, that decision-making team, yeah. beyond, say, Mike Gordon, is, is Dave Fallows and Barry Hunter. So they... They are both like incredibly smart, bright operators um, and innovators in the game. And really across that team and then complementing, say, Jules, I wouldn't say there's a massive, and or there has been like a massive hierarchy. It's about everyone having clear roles and responsibilities and their skill set to, to get things done. Uh, and around them, there's obviously other support in, in, in other departments from operations to, to legal. Um, one of the, I guess, the experiences I've, I've had from working with Jules, so Jules is studying his professional doctorate um, at John Moores University, I'm one of his supervisors. It's been incredible because I don't feel like it's been like a, a massive succession project. It's been a very natural project because everyone has clear responsibilities and the, the roles Jules has been doing. Um, like some of the other guys there, is, it, it is the sporting director role and, um, the, the reality is some people might have a sporting director role title, but not do not have any of the experiences that, say, May Jules has had as, as a loan manager in Liverpool Football Club uh, because of the responsibility uh, and experience and expertise that he has. So for me, it's like quite, quite a natural step. And I think, you know, just given the, the smoothness of the process um, that, that we've seen already, is, you know, it, it, it kind of embodies what we've come to expect from the club is, 
you know, professional, reasonable, uh, high quality decision making. Um, and, you know, I think many people operating the game would look on, you know, with quite um, envious eyes and would love to work in that environment with those type of people because of those reasons. It's so reasonable. It's so professional. Um, and they're working at the, you know, the very top of the game. No, that's that's super useful, and, and and I'm guessing that's that's the sort of things you're probably hoping to 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 see Kev bring into Everton as well. Well, Ke- Kev similarly has like a, a a vast wealth of experience from when he he, he first came into the game. Yeah. Um, he's got great wealth of um, accolades and successes in terms of from his development uh, roles previously, um, which I think is going to be vital for Everton. So being able to, you know, not just sign players, but also rely on developing players and trying to focus in and and create pathways and fight for pathways for that to happen into the first team. Um, I I also think his experiences uh, at his latter side at at Wolves and then over at Red Red Bull has given lots of player trading experiences, which which is going to be vital in those types of the markets that he's been operating in for, for, for the football club. The challenge for... For Everton is that we've had some really amazing operators. Um, whether whether we like to admit that as Everton fans or not, and one of the challenges we have is that there's not a, a great deal of clarity on on what the director of football is allowed to do and what decisions they make. So I think one of the important things that that we do as a club is is iron out that out internally really quickly of who has what responsibility and what role. Um, and who makes decisions, whether it's on players and managers, now that's done it. It doesn't have to be a crazy hierarchy, but there has to be some clarity in the club. And then we need to like communicate that with fans. So one of my one of my worries is that if, if Kev doesn't have those responsibilities um publicly, but it looks like he, he's assigned signings, that might not be his. Um, and if they don't work out, you know, unfortunately we're in a, a situation where um a discerning executive or club or owner might pin those signings on the sporting director and, and they take the responsibility for it further down the line. Um, we're all hoping for that, that, that not to happen because we know how good Kev is and we know given the opportunity to do the role, he, he will be successful. Um, I think we've got the, the, the fan base, we've got the, the support. Uh, I think beyond the culture that we've got now, undoubtedly, I think we've got the playing talent too. Uh, and I think we've got um, an incredibly exciting manager um, who's got some great experiences to, to bring to the, the, the team and the club and will develop hopefully with the club and with Kev over the over the coming years. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and I think even, even before I met, uh, yourself and I were talking about the role of, of, a, of a sporting director and obviously the sort of media spotlight on it and why then a lot of them do do a lot of interviews. I know I know some of them do like Victor at Leeds and and some of the some of the other guys uh, within the role as well. How do you sort of compare the scrutiny that that the that the sort of sporting directors here in the UK get to say, for example, like a Tony over at over at Dundee United or or people over in the MLS? Because I know I know you also do a lot of work as well with um with with some sporting directors over over in the MLS as well. I think a really really interesting one. Yeah, I think there's a massive culture thing that, and it's changing. But when people come to England and say the Premier League, say from Germany, they say, "Well, this is how we do it in England." when actually we're starting to see people chip away at how we do it in England. And uh, Fabio at Tottenham is probably challenging some of the status quo around, you know, having a presence on the bench 
and being involved in some of those decisions and, and making some of the changes he's made already. So one of the things I, we always feel when we only know something that this is the way it is from mm. our own experiences. So a sporting director in the Premier League may feel really pressured by the media and it, it feels incredibly difficult. But then if you go to the Scottish Premiership, your your scrutiny by the media, almost in my opinion, gets even worse. Wow. And you do because the challenge is it's it's a a larger part of the population watch football, follow football. They have a lot of walking fans. The media is intensely fan based as well, which I, I think is fair to say. <laughs> but then, but then I if I had a chat to maybe say someone from Italy, who's a a sporting director, they will say, no, England is easy. The media is easy. No one knows who I am. I can walk anywhere where if I'm in Italy and I go to get a petrol on a, on a hillside out in the country, I will still get fans telling me which players should be signing and this, that and the other. So I think it's all about experiences and, and reflections on, on what it is. And I think over this, this, this in the MLS, I think it's a unique context again. Um, it's also like a, a relatively protected context. So there's high pressure on, on financial return, uh, but obviously without relegation. So, it's about being creative. It's about understanding the regulations and legislation around um, the system over there. But I, I think the I think the threats and challenges are are, are much different. Yeah, because even just mentioning what what you mentioned there uh, on on returns, where do you almost sit in that whole debate between sort of performance and and sort of business? Because sort of take for example, I think this week the uh, the PSG ultras wrote to uh, wrote to the board and sort of criticizing the strategy in terms of how they they feel as though they focus more on the business and the sponsorships and the activation as opposed to actually work on the performance. And I've always sat more in the win maximization camp of if you win football matches, you win trophies, you deliver on the pitch, that will ultimately support the 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 business side of it. Where do you sort of sit on that on that sort of um um yeah I, so Paul for this question there shouldn't be like a where you sit because the the answer is if you're successful on the pitch, yeah. you're successful off it. The, the the business will 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 generally do do well. I think you can have commercial success to an extent, but it's limited by your success on the pitch. Um, I think the commercial and other departments have a really important role in in generating interest, insight, excitement, culture, vibrancy within the stadium, um, and how they, you know, add value that for that for the bottom line around that that it is important. But in the end, if the, the team doesn't win, it becomes really challenging. And then mm. if you don't win for an extended period of time, you can start to work with that commercially and where that's gonna where that's gonna put you. But obviously, if you, if I, well, my take is if you win games, you can it improves the business yeah. it does well. But of course, it doesn't help. It, I think you've got to. Oh, I guess one thing to come out of this is like we've got to think about governance, and you still got to have the right governance within a football club and that because that impacts decision making and strategy and whatnot and those things that people football fans if I was a football fan before you know many years ago I'd be thinking who is this academic talking about strategy and governance you know we could do without that really but I think it's I think we've shifted the dial on that with the access to information which wasn't present maybe uh, 30 years ago Um, where we're at now is that society is changing Yep. expectations and governance is changing. And one of the big things that 
not just sporting directors, but football leaders need to be aware of is this change in governance that is coming in some way, shape or form. Now, it might not come this year, it might not come next year, it might not come in the next five, but it's going to happen. And fan groups will, and fans and supporters will realise how powerful they are eventually. Some already know, but they, they've got to almost convince the collective to come behind them. And that's a challenge in itself. But we are starting to recognise in society, in business, and in football, that we require change, and those changes we are starting to chip away at. So, I think, I think for for a sporting director perspective, we've got to be aware of those agendas, but lots of other things around broader fan groups and how they prepare um, and make themselves ready for what that future looks like. When and we we know it change is, is coming, not as fast as we maybe need, um, but it's coming. Yeah, no, definitely. Last question, the question we always end the show with, which is what the footy needs to change or happen within your space? So I've my, one of the big things, I guess, that ties in a lot of the things that, that, that I do is that we need to focus on, for me, supporting people in the game and supporting the future people of the game. Yeah. to be equipped for the future challenges they may face. So some of the things I talked around, around and DEI, um, around the, the changing governance landscape, they're really, they're really important. But one of, one of the things I guess I would always fall back to, which I, I think is, is key, but I only do this more discreetly with the guys that I work with, is, is, is learning how to learn, but also remembering to learn on a continual basis. And, it doesn't matter what leaders we unpick through history is they're often, you know, wherever they say it, they're often reflective practitioners, but they would never call it that. They would constantly think. They would constantly challenge themselves. They'd surround themselves with people who challenge too. So I think we need to look at how we how we develop people in the role, how we support them on their, on their journey. Uh, they might not call it learning or education, but whatever that looks like for them. Um, and also we need to prepare those coming through into the game that, just on the, the very basic thing, just how do we be better uh, than what we are now? Uh, and that might be on a daily basis. It might be thinking yearly or whatever it is, but trying to better prepare people coming into the game for the future. No, that's super useful. But Dan, no, absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. You're someone who I've always wanted to get on. You're also a listener to the podcast as well. Appreciate your time. And I know uh, you've given some, uh, some real, real useful information for the listeners. Thank you. Paul, thank you for having me on. I, I, I love I love the podcast. I love that you've got a, a purpose and you want to bring insight for people. So I'm sure as it, as it grows and, and more sporting directors hear of this and they'll want to come on and share their insight too. So great resource. Thank you very much. What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Knew some other guys liked me, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Being a kid in primary school, now it's putting off. Powerful people, and I think they need to recognise that. But then also, they need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know, one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. So when in the league, let's just win this to appease the fans.